Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I beat you to it this time. Oh, man, I was ready. Yes. It's like the, what do you call in the old cowboy days? Oh, the, yeah. The, the draw. The draw. What is it called? Shootout? Something like that. I'm, not, I'm a bad cow- cowboy. I don't even know. I know, yeah. That's okay. I feel like it's the first time I've ever beaten you in anything, so I'll <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Except maybe to like first to the dessert table or something. Ooh, that is a race. <laughs> I'll, I'll battle that race anytime. Especially if there's tahini bites on there. Arr, arr, arr. Or creme brulee. Ooh, yeah. Brulee. The, at the planted uh, dinner we had with Ellie Tabritzi, I was, uh, you got that special creme brulee, and I was just oh. like staring at it, manifesting you offering me a bite, and then you so graciously did. Well, because, okay, not only, like... Nightshade. Show, We're talking about creme brulee at nightshade. Just... Town. Oof. Whatever you're doing right now, if you're on the train home or you're on a run, just like stop and put into your phone nightshade vancouver and just go there yes. immediately and order whatever's on the menu but make sure you finish it with a creme brulee it is insane it's so good and not only that but it is like i'm not typically one to be like yeah let's share dessert it's so generous the portion yes. that it's like easily shareable and it is lights out it is so good Portion was as generous as as our company. It's true. It's true. It was a great time, great event. Yeah, we'll night, talk, we'll talk nightshade, nightshade. Shout out, yeah, hundred percent plant based. So check them out. No, so good. no compromise. Yeah. You know, you put them, put them up to, put them to the test against any of them butter and dairy restaurants using the butter fat oil, all that stuff. Yeah, these guys are are plants. Cream, cream of the crop or whatever they say. Coconut cream of the Coconut crop. Coconut cream of the crop. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. It was so good. It was so good. Oh, man. All Almost right. as sweet as this conversation we just Oof, had. This one was Amazing. sweet. Let me tell you. Amazing. If this was a creme brulee, I would be going back for seconds. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, yeah, this week we had a very, very special conversation with somebody that's been close to, to myself for, for a long time. Uh, Dr. Eric Posen from mm-hmm. the Integrative Naturopathic Medical Center, um, naturopath, chiropractor, acupuncture, TCM practitioner, 
among uh, many accolades and many practices that uh, Eric has, you know, beautifully, gracefully mastered and and brought to the the healing and health and wellness community in Vancouver and beyond for the last, you know, nearly 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric has been my natural path since I was five years old. Uh, my my father actually grew up with Eric in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They uh, they had bar mitzvah school together, classes oh, yeah. together when they were you know twelve year old boys in Winnipeg. Um, so he's been a family friend uh, you know since before my time, and I was fortunate to to go see Eric when I had you know whenever I had health health concerns in in my life going back to when i was five so i've i've kind of grown up with that holistic approach to healing and i think in many ways i have uh gratitude to pass to eric because i think that opened my eyes to different possibilities and in many ways that probably led me to my own journey and and discovering you know veganism and and seeking health and wellness as pillars in my own life so goes back to those uh, foundational moments as a, as a young lad going into Eric's office and he always you know treated with with humility and humor and curiosity and wonder and you know made all of us all of his his clients uh, you know just feel so comfortable and mm. in awe at the same time uh, he yeah. truly is I've always seen Eric as kind of like a Jedi wizard mix of like some Star Wars healer, some Yoda kind of like magic mixed with like Harry Potter. Like he's a, he's a, he's a modern magic man. He's a modern, um, medicine man. Like he's just a a truly talented, amazing person. Well, it was really cool for me because this was the first time I got to meet him and you're absolutely right. Like he just has, this uh, incredible presence, like he's just so gentle and thoughtful and kind. And like you can tell, you know, he is, is deeply uh, contemplative and considers the questions of the conversation um, and just like created such a unique energy and held the space um, with such grace and dignity and poise. Uh, it was just such a captivating conversation to hear him um talk about his practice, his experience, his understanding and even evolving understanding of like health and, you know, sourcing concern or sourcing the problem or issue that people are experiencing and helping them to create a balance in their body where their body can heal. And I just, I was so impressed by all of the ways that he showed up in this conversation and yeah, really, really, uh, appreciative of his time and and the practice that he's done for 35 years now um helping people to find balance and to find healing it's just incredible yes he's a true true artist one of a kind this conversation was all about connectedness connectedness in our body between our minds our emotions our spirit how we're connected to nature how everything is connected Mm um we go into his various modalities of healing Integrated integration, functional medicine, um, and wellness habits for longevity. Uh, it's truly a conversation for everybody. Um, it's one that I'll go back to and just so grateful that we got to share this conversation with Eric. Yeah, it was very, very good. I know you are going to just uh, love this conversation and love Eric as well. He's 
just a wonderful, wonderful human. All right, Dr. Eric Posen. All right, all right. Very excited for today's uh, episode. Yeah. Sitting here with a longtime friend and, and teacher and, you know, part of the family, um, Dr. Eric Posen. Hi. How are you? Good, good. <laughs> Thanks for coming down to Sunny Steveston and hanging out with us. And yeah, it's the first time there's been sun and warmth in since August. I know. We have an ongoing joke that it's always sunny in Steveston. It's our like tour- tourism grab to get people out this way. Uh-huh. That's right. That so and fish and chips. Yeah, and fish and chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Few things, sun, sun, and fish and chips. So, uh, Eric, we go, we go back. We were talking about this uh, before the pod. Obviously, you've known my parents, or you've known my dad since you guys were boys, yeah. and and we can get into that. But um, I met you, I think, when I was around five. I first came to Integrative as a, as a five or six year old, and and I was sharing with you. I feel like at a young age, learning um, medicine and healing from an alternative approach, kind of gave me a lens that I've I've used throughout my life uh, to see that, you know, alternative practices can uh, be a wonderful way to, to see the world and to experience the world and, and kind of, in some ways, gave me permission to explore other things, whether that was like in arts or how I approached food for myself. And mm-hmm. um, I've been on a journey with kind of... It, experimenting with foods as medicine since a young age and obviously now with the juice truck you know do it as a profession so thank you for opening my eyes as a as a young boy ah you're welcome can i ask you a question of course so what do you remember about that time when you came to see me the first time when Uh, you were five i i've always been a curious person even when you know starting at a young age and i remember i always it was i had a good feeling going to see you Mm-hmm. I felt like a safe, happy place, and I liked that things were different. Like uh, there was like energy energy check ins. Like if um, if you were testing out if a food was okay or if a medicine was okay, you'd kind of do like the the energy feels, and um, it's definitely not the right term that I'm using, but you know <laughs> the muscle testing, the muscle testing, and. Um, that's one of my like main memories was like the muscle testing of like if if my body says yes to something or if my body doesn't say yes. So learning that like certain foods were more aligned. Um, those were kind of my early memories. And of course, all of your artwork that never changed over the years. Like I remember looking up and there'd be like <laughs> some like kind of Asian, like Buddhist kind of like character flying around on the roof or beautiful like Japanese right. uh, prints on the walls. Uh, Right. Those always left an impression. Ah. So the thing that stuck out in your mind that was different than anything that you had done was things, say, about the muscle work. Yes, the muscle. So that felt different to you from, say, going to your GP. Yes, yeah. And and it was like a, a longer experience at the time. You would ask more questions. It was less less prescriptive and more conversational to a degree like mm-hmm. it seemed like more of a collaboration than mm-hmm. uh you know sharing something and just getting a pill or a syrup or something like that right okay yeah i mean because what you just described is probably the essence of whatever he- whatever healing relationship is yes. in, in all professions so um there's no value judgment 
based on any kind of paradigm of healthcare. Yes. They are all essential. They are all good. People are all drawn to them for all the right reasons and also for some personal wrong reasons. Yes. I think most people are drawn into health professions because they have a wound on themselves or within themselves. And they have power when they are able to help another. Mm. And that is wonderful. And also it's a learning process as to why you are drawn to that. Because for some people it's a defense. And for some people it's a... So it's a double-edged gift is what I'm thinking. Um, Because whenever you're involved in a therapeutic relationship with another... Uh, you have to learn the stance that you're going to be in. It's a stance of neutrality that is accepting, uh, without judgment. Um, it's going, you have to put yourself in a frame of mind where association and creativity come to the fore. Uh, you have to listen to your body and feel what you feel, because what you're feeling is probably what the person in front of you is feeling. And these are all cues to then ask the next question. Right. So uh, is an example of that was really interesting for me in the last two years, like when uh, COVID hit and everything closed down, March of 2020. 2020. Yes. <laughs> um, so our clinic closed, and uh, I didn't see anyone for about four to six weeks, which was very odd. And then started seeing people, but could only do it on the phone. So Zoom didn't really exist as a healthcare entity because there was no um, safe um, mediums to do that kind of uh, th- therapeutic talk. And so the telephone was the most obvious. And in my regular practice, like going back to this experience we were just talking about, where you are standing in front of someone and they are either defended or completely open, (laughs) Uh, you have to be there and hear and experience what you're going to experience. But when you're just on the telephone, it's really quite restrictive as to the information you're getting back. Right. And so it's all about the tone that I was hearing in the person's voice, uh, the continuity of what they were saying when there were lapses, uh, what their breathing sounded like on the phone. These were all the nuanced pieces of information that I was now having to pay more attention to than I'd never paid attention to before Mm -hmm. because I had nothing else in front of me. Right. I mean, you can have lab work, and that's going to tell you one thing, and that's a whole other discussion as to what that means. But to actually have a person in front of you and encounter another being as the other on an equal footing, you've got to be open to everything. And so that was a very interesting way of pra- interesting way of practicing naturopathic medicine. Absolutely, so kind of take everything you've done for forty years and and be able to put it all into a phone call and exactly t- take someone's pulse by their breath work or their pace of breathing or yeah, that's what it came down to. That's so interesting. Now I must admit, I mean, it's uh, it's 
it was good up to a point <laughs> because uh, I am my first uh, professional experience in the healthcare that I deliver was as a chiropractor. I graduated right. originally as a chiropractor, and so it's a very physical based medicine. Yes, and so if I couldn't touch someone, I was literally hamstrung. <laughs> so uh, I had to work on other cues. And it was an interesting learning experience because this is how most medicine, even in naturopathic physicians' offices, is practiced, where someone comes in and uh, you sit and talk to them. And you know, either you then write up a series of tests that you want this person to go through so you can get some more information. You do a physical exam, which would give you some of that physical sensorial input. Um, but it's pretty much just you sitting with someone. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I sit with someone initially, and then actually I have them lie down. <laughs> yes. And when I have them lie down, I uh, then use a process of physical exam with them that requires that they are able to reveal to me uh, more subtle things that are happening within their mind and body experience. And to be a little more specific about that is we have multiple feedback mechanisms within us that are always going on. Our breath, our heart rate, Uh, the strength of our muscles in resistance. Uh, There is a very subtle pulse within the cranial mechanism. These are all things that are at work all the time. And so whenever we are challenged by something new, our system has to interact with that novel entity and will change. And it's going to change in one of three ways. There's either going to be an opening, welcoming response, or there's going to be a retreat, or there's going to be a neutral experience. Right. And all those things that I just told you about those reflexes, they're all going to change. Your arm and leg length will change. Your breath will change. Your pulse will change. If I had you hooked up to a um, monitor of your brainwave patterns, all that would change. Your blood pressure, all of it's going to change. A lot of the times I use the strength of your muscles. Because resistive muscle strength is directly related to a neurological input. And that's going to change. So there's nothing magic about it in that I can do something no one else can. There, what is magic about it is your body is always being a thermometer and, or a barometer mm-hmm. of the world around you. And if you can pay attention to the subtle responses that are at work, you can learn a lot of things of, what, of what's going on. And especially, and if you, you can even do it yourself. Mm. So we're speaking, in a way, to, of, of connection, connections to our surroundings and, and self-awareness to mm-hmm. internal workings and external workings. Exactly. Mm. We, um, you, you remember the term homeostasis yes. from biology in school. Um, that's really what we're talking about. And homeostasis manifests at from a cellular to a much more macro level. Right. And 
it's it's fairly infinite as to how it goes. So you can feel it, hmm. and you can probably feel it yourself. You, I mean, just looking out the window, you feel different right now on a day where there's sun coming in versus the day when there's monsoons happening. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, average Thursday in Vancouver. Exactly. Yeah. There's that physical response. And that's happening, you know, when someone puts a plate of food in front of you, whether you get a phone call from a relative who you've always had a challenge relationship with, whether the bed's too cold when you get into it at mm-hmm. night. All of that is going to change. So have you seen a change in people's own relationship to self over these 40 years where we went from an age where we weren't carrying cell phones around um, to our modern day where we're maybe less connected to our natural surrounding and more connected to this quote-unquote virtual world of scrolling our phone and, and connecting more in that sense? Well, technology is a really recent yes. development. and uh, Or, no, not a development, but rather the... Pr- place it's at today. Yes. So that's a, there's always going to be change right. at that level. And from an evolutionary perspective, uh, our minds and bodies are going to adapt to that. Yes. Now, in several thousand years, are we going to actually need eyes and ears because we're going to have electronic sensors within us? That I don't know. <laughs> but back to your question... The base issue we're dealing with is, no, that's the same. Our bodies have been this pretty much the same for several thousands of years. Yes. And all those mechanisms that are in place for reaction to the world and reestablishing a homeostatic balance are we're just fine, thank you. They're, they're, they're all there. So all these things are going to impact it, and but they aren't going to... Um, Now, this is an interesting place because there are some things about technology that are toxic. Right. Uh, Not all the research is in yet, for instance, on electromagnetic fields. Right. Right. And there's a lot more research about what it does at a fairly deleterious level as opposed to a nutritive level. Right. So that remains to be seen. Hmm. So we're talking about like the... The energy effect of carrying your cell phone or having like a Bluetooth headphones or some yeah. of these these radio waves or whatever they are that, that are surrounding ourselves. It's, it's going to change us. It's going yeah. to change our physiology. Right. Um, and your system is always going to adapt to it. Anything that's a stimulation and, and something that's new into your environment, you are going to initially judge from a survival perspective and then you're either going to incorporate or... Uh, toss out, right. you know, and avoid because it's of a toxic nature. So uh, to make blanket statements about technology, I don't think we can do that. Uh, but for different people at different times, for instance, if you have trouble falling asleep, sitting in front of your computer and your phone for an hour before you go to bed is not going to help you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to consider whether you want to use a blue light filter. Uh, you're going to have to consider what it's doing to the dopamine in your brain and the excitatory systems versus what's it like to maybe want to go to sleep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, now there are conditions where people who, especially young people who are on their phone and social media for a large part of the day, at night will wake up and go on social media and be completely unaware that they've done it. So this has actually now become what's called a paros- paros- parosmia, I think, the term where you start to talk about these, uh, or oh, parasomnia, right, sorry, of where you start to get these aberrant behaviors in your sleep, where you're literally, it's like sleepwalking, mm. only you're sleep texting. Sleep scrolling. Sleep scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's pretty frightening. Yeah, it is. Because all of that speaks to a state of dissociation. And probably the root of most health issues is a dissociative state. Right. Because if you can't communicate with any and all parts of you to produce self-regulation, homeostatic balance, you are going to then become numb to the area. Mm. And when you become numb to the area, it's going to become foreign to you. It's going to be an exclusion zone or it's going to be an amputation and then you'll never be able to heal it because you can't respond to it and bring your resources to bear. And the other thing is is you can't um, even know what it is that you require. And many times when someone comes in to see me and say they have uh, a chronic complaint, uh, say uh, a gut issue, for instance. So anything that's a complaint is going to produce a symptom. And the most common symptom is going to be discomfort. And the hallmark of all of that is what's called inflammation. Inflammation is a natural process to bring, for you to be brought attention to an area that requires something. And so if you get what you need, the inflammation will resolve. But if you never get what you need, the inflammation is going to persist, might become a little quieter, but it'll still persist as an area of irritation that part of you is chronically reacting to. But in being numb to it, you will now start to adapt to it. Mm. And in adapting to it, you'll pull other parts of you which will also develop inflammatory patterns. So an example of how that would be, remember I was telling you about all these reflex systems, so like your pulse and muscle strength, etc., so if you were to p- provoke an area that's inflamed, like say push on a sore point in your stomach, things would normally happen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You'd say like, get out of here, right? Like, don't, <laughs> don't bug me. And your nervous system would make your body react, like your heart rate would go up, your pupils would dilate, and your muscle strength would change on a resisted strength. That's, that, that would be a normal response. But some people who have been so chronically compromised and amputated from themselves, when they push on those areas, they'll feel that discomfort, but no reflex changes. Hmm. Interesting. And what's even weirder is I, when I provoke it on them, it'll change. But when they provoke it, it doesn't change. So they've lost that? They've lost the ability to self-regulate. Wow. So that doesn't matter what medicine you give, doesn't matter what therapeutic intervention you do, it isn't going to happen until you find a way of redeveloping that communication. 
again. Uh, Oliver Sacks, the great neurologist, Oliver Shalom, may rest in peace. Yes. Wrote a, a great book called A Leg to Stand On, which speaks directly to that kind of self-amputation. When he had an injury being chased by a bull down a mountainside and he ripped up the neurological input affecting his leg. And he has a beautiful description in there of what it's like to be numb to a part of yourself. So that would be the, f- that's the first part of healing hmm. for anything, is being able to recognize what is a challenge and then being able to marshal your own resources to resolve it. Connecting to ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. You think about it. I think we often would see that as like a physical ailment, like my stomach hurts or my leg is injured and you know now i've become kind of numb to that but in hearing you speak i'm thinking of the kind of uh, you know epidemic we have of anxiety and depression and more of these like mental health components where people use that kind of language where like i feel i feel numb or i can't physically feel or I do things to try and feel, but I'm like, I'm not sure that I can. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's as though it's like a, it's a really reactive uh, intervention to try and stimulate a response to say, no, 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 like I'm still here and I'm still feeling, but internally or like mentally, the language of being like shut down or shut off. Or choosing to numb. Or choosing to numb. And maybe, maybe it's at a almost subconscious level where it is just like the scrolling and the scrolling and the scrolling of the phone and, you know, kind of removing ourselves from what has been a chaotic world for the last few years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I wonder like what, uh, how people are internalizing that and unwillingly like starting to like shut themselves off to the parts of ourselves that make us feel most alive and feel most human. So, Dean, what you're saying is there's actually a few thing, a few things there in, in that question. Because yeah. uh, to the last part of it, um, most information is uh, about sensorial stimulation. You know, it's it's information coming in. Yeah. But we are organisms that have two phases of involuntary movement. We have an expansion and we have a contraction. So expansion is welcoming to things that are nourishing towards us and then the contraction pushes out our response to that. So if you're constantly taking information in through sensory stimulation, through texting or uh, technology, and you're never putting it out from a energetic perspective, you are building a profound charge in right. your system. And there was a, a work, Wilhelm Reich was a, um, a student of Freud's. I think that's how it went. And he actually was one of the first people, uh, like Freud, Freud spoke a lot about the somatization of the psyche, right? Hysteria mm-hmm. was the thing, which was... So, and Reich started talking about how the body responded to that with a closing down, 
the physical closing down mm-hmm. of stimulation coming in, but no charge moving out. And the ways we get charge moving out through us is through exercise, uh, intimate sexual experience, creative activity. This is how you move the charge out of your body. So otherwise, it just keeps coming in, coming in, coming in, and you become oppressed. Hmm. You're all, you have a sensory system and you have a motor system in your neurology. So you have to be able to, move, to do something with that. Right. So constant uh, barrage of information and then moving into that theme of oppression is going to hit you at your greatest wounds. Hmm. And our greatest wounds, usually in an acupuncture perspective, are going to be in the nourishing systems of our body, which are in the front of our body. So it's going to be in either your throat, your chest, or your guts. And people, you know, so when people get hit, they, you know, contract to go forward. And that's really the part that's getting wounded and where the barrage is occurring. So if you do that constantly, and then you have a epidemic or a pandemic where you can't move any charge out, right? Then, of course, you're going to be feel not feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> because numbness is going to be the watchword of um, your days. And you will develop chronic anxiety because anxiety is feeling you have no choice. Right. Your hands are tied. And so that would be the experience. I could see how the two of them would go together. Yeah. So the, the way out of that feeling of numbness or lack of feeling or I feel as if I'm entombed with something is to go back to those three challenges. You know, exercise, at least 150 minutes a week, uh, intimate sexual experience, and what's the most common thing people come in and when I say, and what about your libido? And everyone pretty well says, what libido? Mm. And the third is creative acts. If every day you created something that didn't exist before, you would be way ahead of yourself on the ability to heal. Mm. And the inspiration for that creative act could be in the experience that you have which is in the numbness and if you go to the song of leonard cohen where there's a crack in everything where the light comes in within every one of those points of oppression there is a crack yeah. in there somewhere yeah and the more you stay with yourself you're going to find that wound or hole yeah or fissure yeah. <laughs> and just pay attention to it and mm. see Feel, hear what comes out of that. And that could be an inspiration for whatever the creative act is. And when I say creative act, not everyone has to be a writer. Not everyone has to play guitar or whatever. You know, there's a myriad of ways in which to yeah. express yourself. But it's all about getting the charge out. Oh, that's so good. And I think it's, uh, it's so important to remember that like, often the things we can feel most damaged or oppressed by can be the source of our greatest inspiration and i mean you mentioned mentioned leonard cohen and you think of singers songwriters poets artists who you know their best work that is revered and stands the test of time has often come from a place of pain or numbness you know it's the best poetry comes when we're heartbroken right like that's <laughs> yeah, yeah although the people who say that are usually the ones who are reading it when they're heartbroken <laughs> 
<laughs> it's hard to read that stuff when you're feeling fully in love and fully alive in the world. That's true. So everything has a vibratory it's, rate that where it's most appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. But I love the reminder that it's like <laughs> we can use use the state that we might feel entombed in. I love how you said that to be the source of genesis for us to mm-hmm. actually break free from that. Yeah, that 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 is a, uh, a prescription. Yeah. And the other prescription, which we shouldn't forget, is, I mean, we're looking at through this beautiful window here, is the world around us, yes. the world of nature. And the number of studies on health and healing vis-a-vis in relationship to the natural world is volumes. Mm. They're just volumes on it. Uh, there's uh, you know, One that comes to mind is people who... Uh, were recovering from surgery, and I think this is in, I can't remember if this was in um, Scandinavia, but they looked at the convalescent times of people after a particular surgery in hospital rooms that had no windows versus those that had windows looking onto a park. The the difference was was compelling that's yeah in terms of how much faster people got out of there when they were looking out on a park just by seeing it just by seeing it wow yeah because i mean we you know the the roots of naturopathic medicine are pretty much what the human body requires and supporting that at at a natural level yeah i mean our natural requirements aren't necessarily uh, prednisone and uh, PPIs for gastric reflux. Our natural requirements are light, air, nature, the rhythms of the world around us. Right. Um, that's the stuff that actually is healing. Yeah. So uh, um, I, I don't I can't remember who which part of the federal government produced this, but they're. And I signed up because it was such a cool thing because you get these prescriptive pads for parks, national parks. Okay. And you could write a prescription for being outside. Go outside. You know, the Japanese have forest bathing. Yeah, the Shinrin-yoku, yeah. Yeah. So you could write these prescriptions to people and say you have to spend 20 minutes a day, you know, walking in verdant nature. Yeah. And... It's the bottom line of pretty much most healthcare. Mm. So I remember you know. hearing, yeah, I remember hearing a story uh, a number of years ago about uh, a gentleman who was a doctor, a physician, and he had a son, and his son was in early elementary school, and you know he kept getting phone calls. His son was having this disruptive behavior and wasn't able to sit in class and stay still and do his work and. You know, they're trying to figure this out, and the teacher had said, "You know, well, you're you're a physician. Like, is there something that you could prescribe?" And he's like, "I know, I know my child, and I don't think like he requires to be medicated." And then he started by almost by accident one day they decided to walk to school, and he said the way that they went to school it was like through a forest path, and it was about a fifteen minute walk. Mm-hmm. So they walked dropped his son off at school and went went to the office and was kind of waiting for the phone to ring or the email to come through, you know, little Timmy's being disruptive again. And it never happened that day. And so then, you know, without really thinking, it was like another nice day. Maybe it was getting towards the end of the year. Anyway, so they started this pattern of walking. Mm-hmm. And these phone calls home stopped. And then, you know, one day the weather was not great. So I threw him in the car and drove him to school and da-da-da. And then got a phone call saying, you know, this... And he eventually put together that the days that they walked to school, there was like 
essentially no large behavior issues that needed to be like addressed. Mm -hmm. And then through that, he started this study of, you know, people experiencing 15 to 20 minutes outside rather than going on a prescription of medication. And, you know, the the study was encouraging people to exactly do that, have the prescription of like time outside. And it was also talked about this idea of grounding, which Mm -hmm. has become more and more popular. Mm -hmm. Taking your shoes off and standing on the grass or... How does that, can you speak to that? Like, how does that work? What does that do for us? Well, we've already talked about that. It's about moving the charge out. Right. So simply by connecting simply our Simply by connecting to the earth. Oh. I, I remember, uh, God, this is a very profound experience for me. It was in May of one year. And I went to visit a friend in uh, Santa Cruz, California. And we were walking along the ocean. And it was a beautiful, warm California day. And I just lay down on the sand, and I had never felt this before, but it's like a hand came out of the hot sand, reached into my body, into every cell that had taken in the dampness of that winter, of that West Coast winter, and sucked it out, pulled it back into the sand, and I got up, and I ran. And I'm not a runner. I, no. I'm not a runner, but I ran uh, probably for about a mile straight, just liberated from that dampness out of my system. Amazing. And so, absolutely. Discharge. Wow. Discharge. There's a lot to take in when you spend a whole winter hunched over, uh, no matter how much exercise you're doing. Yeah. It, it's it, it's hard. Mm. The Canadian spirit is resilient. It's, yeah, <laughs> but it's days like these that just give like us that, life. That they're necessary. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know with uh, naturopathic medicine, uh, utilizing the healing power of nature is like a, a big part of that, and our relationship to nature. Uh, whether it's it's connecting physically by walking through the forest and getting grounded, or, or the foods that we we. Uh, take from from the natural world. Can you kind of touch on our, our in- interconnectedness of of human and and nature, and and why that relationship is is so vital? It's uh, it's by the nature of what you just said. Yeah, we are part of the world. Mm-hmm. We are uh, just because we have cell phones that do what they do doesn't mean that we are any better than the world. So the lessons that we learn from the natural world basically uh, probably stimulate a lot of the ideas and technology for sure about communication. I mean, an example would be um, the forest networks of communication. You know, I'm sure you've all read those books of the, the inter, uh, the world wide web. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Which is, you know, this, the fungal network of communication that stretches over thousands of miles. And also is part that mycelial bond is part of the root systems of how species interconnect and protect themselves against uh, disease and challenge in their environment. Mm -hmm. So going back to what we said initially, we are constantly in, in contact with the world. And the more sensitive we can be to it, the more we can hear those lessons. And the cleaner we have things that we get to put into ourselves that are not tinged with a wide variety of uh, non-organic materials, the cleaner that signal will be. Because the other stuff is, is aberrant. 
it it doesn't resonate well with us. And you know, every day we are exposed to over a thousand biotoxins that our liver, kidney, lymph system has to discharge. And eventually it gets to a point where you can't discharge it all. And it's going to settle out and it's going to produce subtle to more obvious levels of inflammation. And then that is going to change the architecture of our bodies to develop a pathology. And then we're going to end up one day with a pathology that's going to be picked up either in an exam or a scanning mechanism. And then you're going to say, well, what are you going to do about that? Well, the healing, how deep can the healing go on that? Sometimes it's emergency oriented and you've got to cut it out. And sometimes it's gone on so long that it's actually changed the physical structure of your body so you can't get it back to its naive status. So we're kind of screwed in some ways <laughs> that way. And as my wife says, sometimes we can only do good enough. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that might be the hallmark of what health is for who we are at this time. It might just be good enough. Because we've done things to ourselves now that, uh, I mean, when polar bears in their fat tissue are, star- are, are showing PCBs and a wide number of toxins that are nowhere near being manufactured <laughs> close to where they are, then it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. The nanoparticles in the ocean are through each and every one of us now. You know, a large part of us is now plastic. So... That's going to change our physiology, and it's not going to be good because these, all these things start to take up residence in places of high metabolic activity. So our nervous system, neurolog- hormone receptors, things like this. And so that gives momentum to the kinds of pathologies that we see as we get older. You know, at any time in our lives we're probably the best from the age of 22 to 25. Once we hit 27, that's when our hormone levels start to drop. And it's pretty much a downhill (laughs) experience (laughs) after that. Now, we have lots of... Now, this is not to put a diss on, you know, what medical science has done, because definitely our um, age, our lifespans have increased immeasurably over the years. Uh, especially in terms of infectious diseases. But that said, in terms of infectious diseases, there's a lot of things we can't, we, that are taking up residence in us and then do us in over time, like herpes and the variants on that. Uh, it's a big cause of Alzheimer's. So one of many, sorry, that's a whole other conversation right there. Mm. But um, so going back to what you're saying, uh, we are different than the humanity of a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are carrying far more man-made products within us that our bodies have to deal with. And so healthcare at this point is, and in naturopathic medicine, actually one of the key principles first is a drainage. So stimulating our own in excretory systems. And if those are blocked up, then you're really in trouble because then you start to develop a series of this chronic inflammation, which we've talked about, which will change your body. Mm-hmm. And your body's hanging on to those things or it just can't get rid of can't them. can't get rid of them. Yeah. yeah. How, how long does it take the body to change a pattern or to relearn? Like if, if I'm listening to this and 
I want to change my habits to have a healthier existence. Um, if I'm putting my phone down or changing the food that I'm, I'm ingesting all the time or connecting more with nature, how long does it take for things to, to rewire or to, to rehabit ourselves? Well, that, that's a, a great question because there's multiple systems right, in play. Right, of course, <laughs> and different people. And yeah. different people. In different places. So uh, the first has to do with uh, hypnotized behavior. So most addictive behaviors are a form of hypnosis. So you have to become awake to it. And then once you're awake, then you have to make conscious choice. So that's the first step. Okay, waking up. I'm not going to have a jam buster every morning for breakfast or smoke that cigarette or whatever it is you know, we're going to do. So that's the, that's the first step. So avoidance. Uh, then once you've started avoiding things and, you've develop, and then you develop a new pattern of behavior, as soon as you start creating a new ritual, as it were, uh, your brain is going to start to adapt to that. You have uh, neuroplasticity, yeah? your brain and all the nerve cells are going to develop new wiring systems. And the more you do something, the more that will become ingrained. Mm. So that happens fairly quickly. Now, to actually change your body based on it depends on the tissue involved and the toxic load. So um, an example would be, say in our clinic, we do regenerative joint therapies. So if you have, uh, we do a therapy called prolotherapy, where you're using different agents to stimulate an inflammatory reaction in, say, a torn tendon bone attachment or in a cartilaginous uh, tear depending on you know where the joint is etc that's that therapy is going to change your body over three months to over a year uh, to come around uh, working with a toxic liver which is just like average toxic liver from maybe a drink now and then living in an urban landscape but not doing too many terrible things. Uh, if you did like nutritive stuff to help clear the liver, watched what you ate and stuff, you know, within about two to three months, you could probably bring that around. Uh, if you have something like something called SIBO, which is an acronym for a small intestine bacterial overgrowth, uh, which is a pretty big problem. To change that might take a year or longer. So it really depended on the systems. Chelation of heavy metals out of your body right. could take anywhere from 10 months to a couple of years, depending on the burden and how much you can get out. Mm. Uh, so, But waking up to the being aware of these... these that's the most critical step. ...is the most step. critical step. So if we can take that first step, then Always. open the door to possibility. Yeah. Always. Okay, let's open those doors. Yeah. Being, awake. Being awake. Yeah. Well, it circles back to, I think, like what you were talking about earlier as, as a practitioner uh, and sort of the challenge of speaking to people over the phone was like you couldn't be aware of the energies and the, you know, how the body was responding over the phone in the same way you can when someone's in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think same goes for us is like to, you know, <laughs> mixing metaphors, but to like not use the phone so much, but to become more aware of ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Pay attention to ourselves more than our devices or the distractions we use to start to, to come alive and come awake to those things within us that are maybe causing us discomfort or pain or 
the chronic you know yeah. restlessness or anxiety we might be experiencing you, you don't need an app to have the world tell you how you feel about things right so um you know that's that's one of my piss offness of things about apple watches and stuff like that i mean it's going to give you physical data data yeah but you know if it's going to tell you when your your heart rate's going up you can also feel when your heart is <laughs> getting up sure. you can feel what your muscles are doing when yes. something that's going to do so as I said, you don't need tech. You've got wonderful technology to give you that feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, it just takes time to reacquaint yourself with it. You did it as a kid. Yeah. That's how you explored the world was through your senses and through your delight in those senses. Uh, you did a little later in your adolescence when you discovered drugs and going fast and first sexual experiences. And then you became numbed by responsibility, burden, toxic load, you, you name it. Yeah. So it's really a going back to that kind of coming awake again. Waking up. So if we, if we rewind things here just for a moment, uh, maybe before, before you were fully awake, maybe you were already awake. But how did, how did, how did a young, young boy in, in Winnipeg get interested in kind of this way of, of living into functional medicine, naturopathy, Chinese medicine. What, well, what, what was your kind of entry point? And sure. Uh, I, I don't think Winnipeg was the discerning part. <laughs> 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 but uh, Canada was for me, actually. Uh, back in the, as a matter of fact, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Wow. I have to fully thank him for what he did, which is why I do what I do today. Because in the early 70s, late 60s, I can't remember, they, um, the federal government uh, produced these programs called Opportunities for Youth, OFY. And all kinds of, they, they were funding anything and everything. Pro- it would not happen today, I'm sure. But they were funding all kinds of things as an incentive for a young people to be able to have jobs, but also to try different things. And so I, uh, the, I got a gig working in a hospital in Winnipeg called the St. Boniface Hospital in the emergency ward uh, with people who are coming in from challenging drug use. Mm. Now, you got to remember the drug use that was challenging in the late 60s, early 70s is not what we're seeing on the downtown east side and overdoses and things like that. It was it was much more benign. <laughs> uh, it was like l- low quality grass. And then there were psychedelics. And it, mostly it was psychedelics that were uh, affecting people. And so I would be helping the emergency staff with those people because they didn't have the time to sit with someone going through an eight-hour acid trip that was heading south. And uh, so basically that was my gig. But I found that I had, as going back to our original comments in this thing, that I had a proclivity for this in being able to talk to people and be with them. And that led into another thing that in... Uh, Winnipeg then the next development out of that was there was this establishment of the first um, 
crisis youth center, healthcare center, an, an alternative healthcare center outside of mainstream uh, emergency wards and things like this, where people could come in and find a receptive attitude to uh, issues about mental health, suicide issues, uh, drug use problems, things like that. And so I worked on, uh, this is a, a, a building or a, a organization in Winnipeg called Clinic with a K, which to my amazement still exists today. Oh, wow. Amazing. So that's pretty good. And so uh, we started it and I worked on something called the Crisis Bus. I, what a great name. And we would just sort of drive around in the middle of the night to wherever when someone was having trouble and either take them to the care they needed or whatever. And so I was doing that and I was also going to university at the time. And uh, when I was Going to the university, I, they had a f- winter festival. So this is the part where Winnipeg comes in because you need a festival in Winnipeg in the winter <laughs> sure because do. there's pretty much not much else to celebrate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy who was speaking about um, Reichian bioenergetics. Mm. So as I mentioned before, Wilhelm Reich was this uh, contemporary of Freud's, and he was the first person to really sort of set down about mind-body experience. And this was the first I'd ever heard of that. I mean, I was like everyone. You know, you, you got a complaint, you go to the doctor, and, you know, whatever's happening in your stomach is different from everything else that's happening in, in you. And uh, this is when I first heard about charge and discharge and that. And then I started thinking about the people I saw on the crisis bus. Like, I would see repeat customers. Mm-hmm. Like, and gar- granted, you know, I was in the acute care business. So this really wasn't, there wasn't big follow-up in between time. So someone could definitely come back to the same kind of challenge as they were at before. But I wondered, like, why aren't people breaking out of this? You know, why aren't they? And I started thinking, well, if you can't come in through someone's mind and then, you know, speaking to them that way, you can come in through their body. Hmm. There must be the way in and you can break the cycle. How great would that be? And the guy who was giving this talk was a chiropractor. His name was Henri Marcoux in Winnipeg. And I thought, I'm going to be a chiropractor. This is what chiropractors do. So... I, uh, boy, was I naive. <laughs> so I applied to chiropractic school. It was one school in Canada. And uh, they accepted me. And I went, and I remember my first uh, week in chiropractic school. And I'm thinking, okay, we're learning anatomy and you know, all these different things. And when do we get into the Reichian bioenergetics? And... Four years later, when do we get into the Reichian bioenergetics? It never came. It never came. Never came. I, you know, low back pain, shoulder problems, cervicogenic headaches, no Reichian bioenergetics. <laughs> so, I mean, once I was in there, I figured I may as well stick it out because I was learning a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't quite what I was really interested in. And uh, so when I graduated, uh, I came back out to Vancouver and started my practice, and um, it was a different time, because chiropractic is a very interesting profession, Uh, and all 
the provinces had their own unique um, scopes of practice for chiropractic. And a few years before, like, so I, this is 1978 when I graduated, um, a few years before, I think even into the 50s and 60s, there was a very specific scope of practice for chiropractic in British Columbia. That being, you could only work on the first cervical vertebra, the first vertebra just underneath your skull. Couldn't touch anything else. Interesting. And by the time I became licensed, uh, you could work on all the way down to the tailbone, but you couldn't work on any joint outside of the spine. Huh. So if you came in with a knee problem, couldn't really do much about your knee, but I could only do it during your spine. So that was an interesting place to be and uh, an interesting workaround. It's actually, it was sort of like, I remember a patient I saw in my very first year of practice. This guy came in with this neck pain and a very treatable form of neck pain, I thought. But... His real problem was he hated to be touched. Hmm. So I couldn't really give him the treatment he required to ease his neck pain because he wouldn't let me touch him. And that's kind of what practicing at that time was like. I could see what was going on, but I couldn't do, couldn't do it. legally I couldn't do too much about it. So what followed from there is I and similar-minded people started to look at other ways to kind of work with that. Mm. And that's when I got introduced to a lot of other things within chiropractic. And there was a, a chiropractor in Detroit, Michigan, who had the wonderful name of George Goodhart. What a great name. And I think if he wasn't a chiropractor, he probably would have gone, gotten a Nobel Prize for what he had come up with. But he's the first person who sort of uh, who, who first recognized and was able to see that the muscular system is going to react in this fashion that we talked about in the beginning as a reflex system. Muscles will become weak in response to an inflammatory reaction to something. And he's the first person who ever came up with that. Ah. And so uh, I took courses from him and uh, people who were his students and... That sort of led me into, because what that opened up was this issue that when you have an inflammatory response going on in your body, you're going to need something to resolve it. And there are three possibilities. Any or all may apply. One, it may be a mechanical structural thing. So I was completely comfortable with that as learning to be a chiropractor. Two, it could be a metabolic issue, which has to do with the nutrition and the toxic states. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the third possibility, it could be energetic. And that involves a whole series of other things. Mm -hmm. That's the acupuncture systems, the mind-body experience, things like that. And different therapies work at different levels. So what I didn't know up to that point was that your body and bind have a very specific need at any specific time. So if it's like that guy who came in with the neck problem, which I would have applied a structural therapy to, probably 
the issue was more in the energetic demand. Mm. And had I come at it from that perspective, I would have been able to possibly get to the structural issue. So that was my first opening as to, oh, this is where all these other things fit. Right. So when someone says, well, will acupuncture work for this? Or what do you think about coenzyme Q? It's a pretty small question because it's more, well, what does your body require? And then you're going to find out whether it's going to work or not. Hmm. So from, from chiropractics and this curiosity of energy and healing, um, you went, at some point you went to China and you studied traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture there, right? Yeah. So tell us, tell us when that happened and, and just about that experience and that journey. Well, I've been to China three times over the course of a decade, starting in the early 80s. And uh, it ended up with me becoming um, licensed as a traditional Chinese medical practitioner using acupuncture here in British Columbia. And I did it because when you're starting to look at those three different levels, you start to find out what you don't know, and you need more tools. So the more tools you got, the more you can apply an effective therapy. So traditional Chinese medicine is a radically different paradigm. Mm. And you can see it just in uh, a perfect example is the anatomical consideration of the body. So when you open any Western medical text, an anatomy text, and an anatomy text is basically an orientation to the body with descriptive terms. So the posture, the standard neutral posture of an anatomical position in Western medicine is a person standing facing you with their palms facing you forward. So you have orientation to front, back, anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, etc. In Chinese medicine, the traditional anatomical posture is a person on their hands and knees. Everything that faces the earth is yin, and everything that faces heaven is yang. So that is a whole other question of like, well, what's yin and yang? Yeah. So that is about a balance between uh, what is nourishing versus what is protective, what is internal between what is exterior, etc. And then that metaphor can go deeper and deeper within the body, as does in Western medicine, anterior, posterior goes deeper and deeper within the body. But it's a far more poetic vision in traditional Chinese medicine. So the therapies are based on that paradigm of orientation, excess, deficiency, um, exogenous uh, issues that enter into the channels of the body and disrupt the balance. So they didn't have any concept of bacteria, mycobacterium, heavy metals, things like this, but they saw it from the effect these things had on the body. So those would then be given terms like heat, cold, wind, damp, phlegm, things like this. So the diagnoses were based on those poetic metaphors, and the herbs and acupuncture treatments were then oriented along that as well. So 
completely different concept in looking at the body. So when I learned traditional Chinese medicine and those concepts, I had to A, put my Western orientation aside and take up a whole other hat, as it were, and mm -hmm. eyes and ears. But over time, I've come to see how I can fit them together. So from what I see from a Western perspective, I can also orient to these metaphors right. and then choose things appropriately that would be uh, effective if required in terms of looking at those paradigms. So that, that's how traditional Chinese medicine came into my plate. Then I also noticed that after as a chiropractor, I could do things with the spine, but I didn't know very much about the skull and the jaw and the brain and things like this. So I ended up studying uh, classical uh, cranial sacral osteopathy. And I was lucky enough that the person who I learned it from, uh, a British uh, naturopath um, named Richard Holding, and his teacher was Roland Becker. And Roland Becker was a student of William Sutherland, who was the person who initially came up with cranial osteopathy. Osteopathy itself developed in the late 19th century, paralleling chiropractic. Mm. And it was related to, they came from pretty much the same place where uh, there was the structure and its effect on the nervous system. Uh, the chiropractic is, uh, model was more neurologically oriented, and the osteopathic model was more uh, circulatory oriented. Um, but oste uh, cranial osteopathy then sort of took that to a next level where it developed, uh, it was based around the idea that if you ever look at a skull, you see these zigzaggy lines. So these are called sutures. And what are they doing there? Well, they're joints. Well, does that mean there's movement? Turns out there is movement. It's not obvious, not big movement, but it's a micro-movement. And the movement is generated by um, an expansion contraction within the fluid system of the cerebrospinal fluid, which is encased within the meninges and which attaches to the inside of the 22-odd bones of your skull mm. and then links up with the connective tissue that follows every nerve out of your spine. So your entire body then follows a phase of movement where there is an expansion and a contraction 5 to 12 times a minute, hmm. which is a completely different rhythm than, say, your heart rate or your breathing or things like that. So when I go back to initially where I said, um, you know, you feel these different reflexes, well, you could do that too. So, for instance, you could feel this rhythm if you, uh, if you palpate someone's head and, say, expose them to something that their system has a challenge with. You know, just their sensory system. And then you can feel it. The whole system goes into a contraction, hmm. and it stays there. Wow. You say, well, this is one way of knowing. You don't have to tell me you feel crummy, because I can feel that you feel crummy when blah, blah, blah is happening to you. So that was another skill I had to learn. Uh, and then other things came up along the way because of that, because you just kept running into, oh, I can do this, but now I don't know how to do this. And, uh, and so you end up getting a multitude of tools in your toolboxes that you can pull out when appropriate. So you're able to be 
you had the unique stance of being a teacher and a student through this like duration of of x amount of years if you're in a position in healthcare with other human beings you never stop being a student yes mm. that's great mm-hmm. you, you, there's no you can't stop as a matter of fact if you do stop that then you should probably stop practicing because you're not going to be able to learn from what's in front of you yeah. Well, that's that's life, right? Well, yeah, I think once you think, exactly. once you think you've got it figured out, like, well, have you really? Like, we're always on journey and in process. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you see what what you get from experience, and this is even though you know all research shows that you know as you get older, you th- you think differently. There is you know some degree of atrophy in the brain, etc. But you, the, what you do think differently is you have a wide range of experience to draw on. So that means our brains work by association. So you have more associative patterns that you're seeing. So all of a sudden, you don't have to think things through so much from square one each time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might in some very difficult situations, but you start to see patterns or else it triggers Right. Other thing, which comes back to what creativity is about, you know, because you mentioned in the beginning about poetry and things. I mean, my favorite things are really are poetry and jazz because they all come out of association and in the moment, mm. and everything is inspirational out of what just happened. But you got to be open to it, right? Yeah. I mean. No one's, everyone's going to, they'll like the riff you're doing the first time, but you do it 10 more times and people are going to be bored with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too, I mean, to, to play with that parallel, like I love, I'm a musician as well and have, have loved it and deeply appreciate jazz for the fact that like, you can't be a great jazz musician breaking all the rules if you don't know all of the rules. Exactly. And so in your case, like kind of having this holistic approach and understanding these different ways of learning about and knowing about the body and the responses, like it allows you a unique position, I would think to treat someone because you can wear like the Western medicine hat versus, or or take it off and say, no, I think what we need here is this approach. Right. And move into that more like traditional Mm -hmm. Chinese medicine approach. Mm -hmm. And so it postures you in a place where you can kind of, break the rules so to speak in like a jazz sense of being like Mm -hmm. oh that shouldn't work this way but like it works so brilliantly yeah yeah yeah. i i mean this might be anathema for your listeners but my interest in healthcare isn't always the end result Hmm. because you can't you can never guarantee a cure that's pretty much impossibility but what you can guarantee is the process of a cure. And the process is going to be unique to each and every individual. Because when you're going through those different levels of um, those three types of uh, vehicles for therapeutic intervention, like we talked about the structure, metabolism, etc., you're also going back in time, Hmm. especially in a chronic inflammatory state. So what may start out as a uh, stomach pain, and once you go through some of the metabolic need for that, like say you need enzyme supports or stay away from gluten or whatever the case, as, as that 
starts to resolve, you start to get to something underneath, and then it might move, say, into the energetics. And in the energetics, it might start to move into memory. And when it moves into memory, it might end up with, remember when we said initially, you know, about getting a wound, an emotional wound in your belly. So usually we, all our survival skills develop when we're really young. Mm -hmm. And our brain remembers these survival skills and will constantly remember them, even at a subconscious level. So when anything comes up that's even remotely associated with that state, it'll bring up our old survival skills, which may not be appropriate when you're 35 or 42 or 56 or 87. Right. Yeah. But will still come to the fore. And then you're going to start to feel things as if they were in the beginning. Right. And then, so you start to have a, that conversation. And what's going to move that? Well, I'm too frightened to look at what that is. I may move into the acupuncture system to actually start to move, remove some of the armoring mm. or use um, homeopath- homeopathic remedies to dissolve that hold so that at allowing inspiration to come back up again. Wow. So that would be a, an example of how that kind of jazz process yeah. works out. So you start with a theme and there's a key, but you've got to find out what that theme and key is. Yes. Oh, that's that's brilliant. Inevitably, it moves into a minor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always. A diminished Always. seventh. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's amazing integrating all these modalities, you know? Like, I, I think of, like, how you heal to somebody that speaks, like, seven or eight languages and... With those people, sometimes I wonder, like, do you do you think in English? Do you dream in Spanish? Do you like, you have all these languages going on at different times, and and how do they they play together? So it's cool to to kind of hear you share how you're able to use all these modalities to to go about you know one issue that might be a hundred issues, but you're able to use all these different languages to kind of get to the the source and. It's great to, to know that, but it's also really great to know when you can't do anything more. Right. And that you need other people to help. Yes. So no one has all the answers. Yeah. And no healthcare uh, system is able to provide everything. But there are strengths to everything that is out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm always referring uh, people on to perhaps the next stage or something like that. I, I refer within our office to, you know, there's a, a couple of practitioners who, for instance, work more with cancer. And um, so I was, you know, send folks over there or moving out into the medical community. I have some people that I can work with and send people there because no one can do it all. Right. Mm-hmm. Collaboration. Collaboration is what it's all about. But the bottom line for any healing thing is you need another person. Takes you need, two, takes you two. need somebody else. Mm-hmm. There's got to be another. So uh, what would be an example? There's a, a therapeutic uh, treatment I learned called etiotherapy, which was developed in France and it's all it's really about uh, looking at constructs in the mind that reproduce recurrent um, reactions in the present and you can have 
a bazillion monologues with yourself about an addiction, a habit, or anything like that. But you will never be able to change it unless you interact. What I learned is we have to, you have to interact with another person. Hmm. You need to have the dialogue with the other to become different, to hear it outside of yourself. Because then it's going to change because you're giving voice to it. Right. Is it, is it any different if that dialogue's internal? Like if you're working through something through meditation or... Well, it's good, but it's, it'd be imperative, I think, upon you to use any one of those three discharge systems that right. we talked about yep. to then move that out. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, you're Otherwise, just, just going to keep talking about it yeah. so, <laughs> internally. Yeah. So, like, would you say that we're, in some ways, we're hardwired to heal ourselves, but not by ourselves? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Like, I... Yeah. I, I always believe that like we are we are made for community and it comes back to that's what we were saying earlier, like our connection to the planet and the earth and like we often see ourselves as other and we love learning about like oh the mycelium network and the you know, it's such a beautiful symbiotic relationship that the plants and everything has mm-hmm. going on over there and we're like not part of that somehow. We see ourselves as separate and I think just a reminder that like we need each other absolutely, and we need each other for healing is is really important, really yeah. powerful. Yeah, this is another reason why the past two years has produced that state of mind that you were talking about. Yes, because it's cut us off from community. Yeah, and Zoom doesn't completely cut it. No, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's all. It's okay. But it is not a replacement yeah, for yeah replacement. sharing space or sharing a meal or yeah, yeah at an intimate walk or time with our closest people. You can't ever replace that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I think I shared this previously, but uh, I'll just share this for this conversation. I recently was was learning about the, the giant redwoods in, in California and mm-hmm. how shallow their root system is. It only goes about... 12 feet deep for such a giant tree you'd think a root that's only 12 foot deep with a tree that's you know hundreds of feet high would just fall over but their secret of their their success is is community and they it goes it goes far and their roots intertwine and interconnect and and they hold each other up and so the the redwoods need each other to be able to stand tall yeah they exist as a grove yes i mean you can see it here when you go into any of the forests when large cedars have come down it's like what you're only like a foot deep two feet deep yes but it was all this entanglement into everything around it that held it up through those horrendous windstorms over the centuries so that's pretty phenomenal yeah we are the same yeah we are the same it's true so so through these these years you've been practicing for for 40 40 some years which is amazing um, for those listening that want to incorporate some some habits into their life, um, what have you learned um, about uh, the questions we get most often asked are about longevity and brain health? So mm-hmm. I was wondering if if you could share what you've learned about wellness habits that support healthy healthy long lives and healthy healthy brains for those for longevity. Right. Well, long life. I mean. There's no, there, there, I don't think there's any uh, prescriptions for yes. a long life. Uh, there's prescriptions for a good life. 
Let's talk about that. Yeah. Living, living good, well, good quality of life. I mean, my grand, my father. Uh, I just had this great experience. I went back to Winnipeg last month, and my um, nephew and his wife came to Winnipeg from Haifa, and with their daughter. So she was born seven months ago. A beautiful little girl by the name of Liel. Mm. And so this is the first time I got to see her, but it was also the first time my father got to see her, and he's 107 months. Oh, my goodness. So wow. the two of them together, just holding on to each other, was like, wow. That is it was 100 special. years between these two beings. Wow. And uh, world, a world between them. And um, now, not the secret of uh, a long life for my father, but a, the secret of a good life for my father is when my wife, Dina, turns to him and says, so, Abe, how are you feeling? And he says, can't complain. <laughs> I could complain a lot about a lot of things <laughs> at 71 where I am now. Or if I was 100, I could see a lot of things my dad could complain about. But yeah. No, he's got resilience. Wow. He's got a uh, sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, he's got capacity to uh, roll with the punches. Mm. So... One of the things I, I do with people is, when I first see them, is uh, I do an evaluation of neurotransmitters. You can do uh, through lab work and or through questionnaires. And there are four key neurotransmitters that uh, most of the questionnaires are the way we do it. You first find, like, what's the genetic bias that someone has in terms of the effect of these neurotransmitters, and then whether people have enough to have the best possible brain given their genetic potential. And two of the neurotransmitters, acetylcholine and dopamine, are stimulating, and two are calming, GABA and serotonin. Most people are GABA-dominant. Uh, GABA is short for gamma amino butyric acid, in case anyone's doing tests after that. <laughs> <laughs> and so a GABA brain is all about, it's ruled by the rhythm of the brain waves. So it generates states of mind about adaptability, patience, tolerance. It's much like Tai Chi. Mm. Stuff's coming at you, you can roll with it. Uh, you could be a leader of a group, help move to a common goal. Or you could be a member of that group and help everyone go, go there. So I think that's, since most people are GABA dominant, that really speaks to a healthy brain, how a healthy brain function is going to work. And now you, I think probably the greatest fear, one of the greatest fears that people have is developing dementia as they get older. And uh, it's... True, because there you are, is you are more or less present, but then you're not present. And the world around you is trying to call out to you, and you are not that person any longer. So that's something you'd want to avoid to the best of your ability. Now, unfortunately, the chances of avoiding that happen a half of a lifetime or even longer before. Yeah. They start, you know, because the, the brain will produce the, the hallmarks, the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's or some of those dementias are what are called tau proteins. And 
amyloid deposits, these protein deposits. But that's not the cause of, of Alzheimer's. That's a reaction to inflammation. Mm. goes back to what we talked about. And it's this neuroinflammatory response that will make these deposits accrue. Now, that can end up running rampant. And when it starts to run rampant, then you're going to get this accelerated state of dementia, where you're going to lose brain cells for these tau proteins, etc. And uh, there's some work by, this, this guy is very good, Dr. Dale Bredesen. He's a medical doctor in the States. And he wrote uh, a book called uh, Recode, which is short for Reversing Cognitive Decline. And what he came up with is that there are about 35 plus insults that can happen to the brain that will develop these neuroinflammatory responses. And if you can get half of them under control, there can be a reversal of the neurological damage. And that's up to a point because there's different degrees of how a dementia will proceed. So an early stage of a dementia would be called a subjective cognitive impairment where you might feel something's wrong, like you can't remember things a little too often and or you know, where'd you put the keys or whatever. And but no one else notices too much around you. And also if you went and did any testing, not much would show up. Right. But that if it goes and that might start a decade to fifteen years before you might progress into what's called a mild cognitive impairment where all of a sudden the people around you are noticing things aren't going as well. But you can still do stuff. You can still dress yourself. You can still, you know, go shopping and things like that. And that might just hold at that point, or it might progress then into more demented states and frank Alzheimer's. Right. So you can't really change things when it gets to that point, but you can change things at the subjective cognitive impairment or the moderate or mild cognitive impairment states. So there are, there are five sorts of processes, five or six processes that start that. One is if inflammation is present in the brain. And we talked about some of the things that could do that. Another is if there is a toxic state. And that could be you know heavy metals, could be uh, biotoxins, like from herpes, uh, molds, things like that. Uh, another has to do with uh, altered blood sugar regulation. Another has to do with uh, vascular support. Another has to do with trauma. Mm-hmm. So all those people who've had head injuries in soccer and their teens and car accidents and things like that, that's a basis for some of this to happen later on in your life. Or having a chronic herpes infection, that's one of these 35 things that's going to change multiple markers. Oh, another one is nutritive. There's like an atrophy in the brain where hormone levels are dropping, uh, not getting the right nutrition, um, those sorts of things are going on. And that's going to produce this as well. So those are the five or six categories which will produce 35-plus challenges that you have to enumerate. So if you're going to do a workup with someone 
And when you say, what can you do to have mm-hmm. a good brain as you get older, it's good to have all that kind of evaluated when you are present and accounted for <laughs> at an early time in your life, where you still can develop neuroplasticity right. and neurogenesis, develop new so, so, so that's 40 plus. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? So would like an anti-inflammatory diet or, or habits that are anti-inflammatory help? It's going to help. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, like, is CoQ going to help? Right, right, right. Yeah, they're all it part all, of it. it it's all, all part of it. It's all connected, like, yeah. the, like those giant redwoods. It, like, like, those, like, like, like those redwoods, it's all connected. Oh, yeah, like the redwoods. <laughs> yeah, they're all connected. So you have to go and uh, go through your life mm-hmm. and say, where, where were my, my issues? Mm-hmm. Uh, where did I, you know, did I do a lot of drugs when I was younger? Am I still drinking a glass of wine every day? Uh, these are things that are going to have an accrual. Have I lived with post-traumatic stress disorder since my teens from a sexual abuse or even childhood? That's going to do it. Right. So these are all things that you've got to look at your story, your autobiography, Mm. and that'll tell you where the wounds are. And if you really sit with yourself and say, you know, that's I'm done with that. I'm good with that. I've done this and this and this, and I feel coherent with it, then that's great. But if you still feel an inkling that, no, that could still use some help, then you should probably address it to some care to look for the other. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question in this vein yeah. related to uh, maybe some of the synthesis harmony or even disharmony between like Western medical approaches versus like a more holistic approach where we're looking at all of these elements to, to help someone experience healing. So we talk about inflammation and you had said inflammation is present in the body when there's something off and it's kind of like our early warning system. Mm -hmm. And if we can address that, the inflammation goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps a bit of broad strokes here, but a lot of Western medicine is symptom treatment, right? Where I have this pain or I have this something and what's often done is, oh, let's get rid of that pain. Here's a prescription to stop the pain, but it might not necessarily be treating the root cause. So if that's the case and, you know, or people are, oh, my back always hurts. So I just take two Advil, you know, two Mm -hmm. to four Advil every day. So I don't Mm -hmm. have to think about the pain, Mm -hmm. but they're never addressing the pain. Um, can our, maybe, I guess the question I'm asking is like some of the, some of the, um, things that we have and do to mitigate the pain we feel in our body, could those be actually harming us in the long run in terms of masking the reason for the inflammation and therefore the inflammation never really goes away Mm -hmm. and can, as a result, people who are well-intentioned and wanting to feel good are putting themselves at risk of things like dementia. Well, um, I mean, you've asked a couple of questions there, I think. <laughs> One is about, you know, what, what does it mean about inflammation? Is that going to actually fix the problem or mask it? Yeah. And the other was about health care that is oriented to symptom relief versus rooting the cause. Yeah. So in, in answer to the first part, um, I, I think if you're doing something that actually inherently makes the inflammation go away and doesn't just act as an anti-inflammatory as a, as a, a blind cover-up, mm-hmm. uh, you're probably healing it okay. to the best of your, your ability. Because 
if something's inflamed, it, it, it's and if it's been there from, say, a trauma, for instance, you may always end up with some physical limitation to that. But and there's scar tissue and things. But if you you know work with exercise and mobility, and you have a diet that's going to give you enough nutrient to help support the connective tissue. That's probably as good as it's going to get, and it's probably not going to be an impact on your general brain health or things like that. Right. But if you, um, say, chronically get uh, shoulder pain that has nothing to do with your shoulder but is actually tied in with your gallbladder and a chronic inflammation in your gallbladder, and you don't address it in terms of what you're eating and evaluate gallbladder function and see if there's actual stone that's developing an infection or things like that, then yeah, that's something that you can't mask. Right. You, you have to pay attention to. But as I said, if you do something that really makes that discomfort go away, you're probably going to be good. Okay. Uh, the other part, the other quest part of the question is, well, healthcare is... Probably the the best health care there is is the emergency ward. Because if you go in with an acute problem, they're going to do everything to find out what that problem's from. And they're going to get to, right. to root cause, whether it's a toxic state, you know, uh, whatever. It's in the realm of chronic, these chronic problems yeah. that... Uh, that's that's going to take a lot of different approaches. And that's why these quote-unquote alternative practices developed mm-hmm. to try to um, deal with more chronic issues. But West, uh, uh, medical, uh, uh, I, I don't always use the term Western medicine, uh, traditional medicine from a white Anglo-Saxon perspective. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's be very specific about that. Yeah. Um, so what happened in uh, how looking at those kind of chronic problems developed, there was a whole other form of um, population within traditional doctors who wanted to ask that bigger question again, like where does that come from? And hence... Functional medicine developed. Can, well, can, you, can you define functional medicine as well? Well, functional medicine is really medicine, what right. medicine should be. And functioning. <laughs> <laughs> it, it should look at all parts that go into the pot Yes. and what's going to make that pot. Right. So if you come in with a chronic problem of, say, a chronic sinusitis, yes. uh, we want to look at your whole story right. about... Uh, head trauma, exposure to molds. Where did you grow up? You know what? You know, what were illnesses you went through? What was yes. emotional challenge? You want to look at all of that to create a story, and then look at a timeline of your story. Like when did symptoms come on? And when did the next thing happen, etc. So let's try to get as big a picture as possible, and then using a wide variety of tools to discern where where do you go first with that. So that that's what functional medicine is so that's kind of what naturopathic medicine's been practicing medical doctors who work in this other perspective been practicing and it's got strengths to it and it's got weaknesses to of course it. 
yeah, as, as do all things. Yes. So the strengths are it's wonderful in terms of looking at lifestyle, uh, all the things that come together that will produce these chronic problems that are really intractable for a lot of people, like fibromyalgias, chronic fatigues, um, and what we're going to end up with long-term reactions with COVID as a thing like that. Um, what it probably isn't so good at is that some people get on the bandwagon with one or two parts and then, you know, become hustlers about it. Mm-hmm. And that's in every profession. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I think it's, it's good because a lot, it's opened up a lot of research that is then looking into those sorts of problems. So, in answer, I think that kind of does that answer your yeah. question from those two. Well, for sure, yeah. It was just interesting because I I had not thought about like you know if we just try to mask the symptoms by making the pain go away, but we're not actually like dealing with the root cause, and it's just sort of lingering there. That could be a contributing factor to these long term diseases yeah, that yeah. show up as a result of. And there, there's you know sometimes there's a root cause. Yeah. Like, you know, say someone experienced chronic sexual abuse or uh, lived next to a chemical plant that was, <laughs> right. you know, depositing also, or lived on a major thoroughfare. Right. Yeah. So those would probably be, you know, root causes to a wide number of things. But... Once you, you know, you start as you accrue time, you get all these other insults on top of it. And your body has only a finite amount of energy in which to deal with the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the image I'm always using with my patients, and I probably did this to you as you get older, Zach, is that, you know, you get these core issues that are like a center of an onion, and then these layers of compromise that accrue around it, and this onion's in a box, and you hit the walls of the box, which represents your tolerance, that's when you develop the acute aspect. But what you're only getting an acute aspect from your last compromise. Right. And then you have to go after the next compromise and then the next, which becomes this proce- the oh, process that we talked about. Yes. Which is the intriguing part because that's the archaeological dig through someone's history as it's manifest through their body right. to how you answer all these questions yeah. as it goes along. So if, when someone comes in to see me and they figure, okay, I've, I, I'm developing problems with my memory and things like that, you know, anything I can take? Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of things you can take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's going to be all these things that it's going it's going to require heavy lifting. Yeah. to start to shift something back. And even then, I don't know how much you can put the brakes on that momentum. Right. to it. Yeah. Cuz it is it's it's so much that can be addressed in the life that was lived up to that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you talk about energy and experiencing it a, a lot and like I know you know, not, not enough, but hearing things about like, um, chi and qigong as like practices, uh, to bring attention or intention and awareness and healing to specific parts of the body. Is that something that you do with people or like, uh, teach about like that, that energy flow through, through our bodies and how to like align it or make it flow in the, the way that yeah. it like is best suited for us to feel well, well. Any, anything that's going to be an effective therapeutic intervention is going to change all that your body's going to do it right your body's going to do it uh i don't teach i've done qigong 
exercise and stuff like that. But an- anything that's going to remove these obstacles of inflammation is going to move uh, that. And in Chinese medicine, qi is really two things. It, qi is a life force, but mm-hmm. life force moves your circulation, the blood. Blood carries the qi, qi moves the blood. So uh, what, whatever's going to be as I said, most effective is going to move all of that. One of the key things I do with a lot of people is um, I have them sit down and draw, get a large piece of paper. It's got to really, be really big because you've got to put it on the wall. And you draw two columns. One, one column's headed nourish, and the other column is titled deplete. And then you spend like a week with this piece of paper and very specifically fill in the lines. What gives you joy, happiness, thrills you? What makes you contract, despair, etc.? Uh, but you've got to be really specific. So, you know, say you put up, you know, my boss. Well... Some, no one's a complete monster. I mean, some people are. But, uh, Vladimir Putin comes to mind. <laughs> but um, it's more like when so-and-so says this or when they do this, it makes me feel like this. Right. So that's the sort of stuff you put in. And when you feel you got everything on this piece of paper, you step back and eyeball it. A world in which the chi is moving and in Chinese medicine, your chi is going to nourish you, right? Uh, would have about 90% on the nourish side and 10 to 15% on the deplete side. Right. So if it's anything different than that, then that is going to be the place where you're going to do something about it. And you have three options. One is be creative. And how can you creatively transform that which is depleting into something that is nourishing? So maybe, well, I'm going to speak to my boss and say, well, when you say that, this is how it makes me feel. And I own this part, but I need you to be aware of this part. Mm. Uh, Another way of dealing with it is looking for help. Go back to the community idea. You don't have to do it all on your own. And the third way is if you still have a bunch of stuff on the deplete side, you have one other option, and that is you've got to cut it out of your life because there's no way, shape, or form that you're going to transform it or utilize it or keep bang- you're going to just keep banging your head against the wall. Hmm. And if you can develop more that is nourishing in your life than not, then this chi is going to move, and you're going to be fine. Yeah. That's good. That's coming back to like uh, long life versus good life like that. Yeah. If you've got more of that stuff nourishing you, like that's probably setting you up to experience a good full life. Yeah. You yeah. can be at the end and say, that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to a cartoon I remember in a Buddhist magazine. Once. There's a, a series of images. There's a little girl, there's a baby, and then a little girl, and then she gets older. And, you know, and it goes to the final last panel where there's this old lady and her word balloon over her head is this oh that sucked <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that no. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah definitely not yeah that, that's a good little check-in that we can do every year however often we mm-hmm. want though the nourish versus the nourish deplete i love that that is right? good yeah um so going back to you know you've you've been practicing 
for, for a few years now. And you've got uh, some younger practitioners um, at your at Integrative now. Um, what do you want to pass down to the, the next generation of, of healers? What is well, your hope? Uh, the people who work in the clinic now are, they, they've moved from being young and novices, and they're moving into their own power now. So I think what I had to teach them, I think they've already learned. Uh, and they've learned also from being able to do it themselves. So I'm pretty happy with how that's that part's worked out. Uh, I mean, I'd love it when you know new practitioners come by and they say, "Can I hang with you for that?" I'm ha- totally happy to do that and and, t- and go through uh, you know kind of what I do with people. But uh, what I found is. The way my vision is in my clinical approach, it's not for everybody. Um, I was lucky that the two people I started my practice with, Larry Chan and Hal Brown, we all thought the same way. And we all came from the same place. We were all chiropractors. We all went through the traditional Chinese medicine. We all, we all did it all together as a group. And, we, and I started my office with them about 40 years ago or so. Plus, so that was kind of a group mind at work, and all of us have then taken what we've learned from that and passed it on to the newer people who've come into our clinic. But as I said, they've been there now for a while, and they've they're in their own. Right. They're, they're they're set off, and they're great. So, what I would just remind people and is and I I don't think I have to actually do much reminding about this because. A lot of people, uh, all these things that I've been telling you today, they were really out, out of the box when I started practice and maybe even up to about 10, 20 years ago. But now they're in everybody's um, vocabulary. It's become and, very mainstream. Yeah. yeah. Th- this, there's nothing I'm saying here that sounds really radical. I mean, this is what everyone thinks. So I think w- I've done what I needed to do. Hmm from that perspective, that people are now thinking that way. And I don't have to explain so much <laughs> when, when, when people come in because they're ready to, they understand that. Yeah, They understand there's context to life and healing. And it's not just, I'm going to take this to make this go away. Yeah. Can, can you like pinpoint or think back to like when that, when that shift started to happen? Like, was it in the last five years, 10 years, more gradual or more sudden, where all of a sudden you had more people saying, listen, I've tried this, but now like, I'm ready for a more holistic approach. Like, I want to understand my body and how to heal it. And- well, people have always come to me with saying that. Okay. So that, that I haven't noticed. Right. Either. But when I look at things like where research goes, you know, in... in uh, standard and conservative uh, medical texts and papers and things like this. Uh, Lots more stuff about nutrition, memory, uh, mind-body experience, things like this. Certainly over the last 10 to 20 years. So that's become, in some ways, more mainstream. Right. Uh, What still shows the divisions... Is, is this uh, virus? Yeah, and the reactions to COVID. Uh, 
because it still shows there are different peri- different ways of thinking that people have in different healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've come out with vaccines and masks and isolation as, and these have been tried and true ways of dealing with viral infections for as long as we've had these sorts of uh, tools. Right. Uh, but it's the sequelae to these reactions, like people in long COVID or as we now have medium COVID sequelae, that it's the virus is capable of re issuing or re-exacerbating any old problem someone had. So it could be emotional traumas, it could be herpes infections, it could be um, gut problems, it could be uh, asthma issues, all, all things that were thought healed mm-hmm. and done, which kind of goes back to your question, is it really healed? Yeah. Did it really ever go away? Um, and it seems not. If you do so, that something that is major, like this viral infection, it's capable of infecting so many cells and so many of the ACE2 receptors that it throws everything into disarray. So how are we going to deal with that? Now, there was a report that just came out, I saw last week, of the different vaccination rates in different colleges, healthcare-providing colleges in British Columbia. And naturopathic physicians, their vaccination rate was the lowest of all the healthcare professions, which I was like, whoa. Mm. I mean, I I got vaccinated, and I saw no reason not to get vaccinated because this was, as we said, about what it was. But... What it basically came down to is that one in three naturopathic physicians was not vaccinated for whatever reasons that they have chosen and they're thinking about uh, how how to deal with this virus, etc. So that brings up a lot of questions to me. I don't have any specific answers and I'm not going to make any pronouncements about what that means because I don't know what that means. But it does speak to me that uh, there are always lots of other options on how to deal with something. And sometimes you have to look at what people are pushing on fringes to see if it actually does bear fruit. Mm. Uh, An example would be the use of uh, nicotinic amide sprays. As a, which is a naturally occurring substance in the body and is being used as a nasal spray to uh, not stop getting COVID, uh, but to mitigate symptoms. And it's something that was used in naturopathic practice for a while, and now it's getting a little more attractive. There's companies in Israel, I think, that are starting to manufacture it. So we've got to be open to not, not close our minds quickly Mm-hmm. to anything that comes up from another profession or another way of looking at something. Um, because, as we found, uh, there is possibility in many things. And the answer might not be quick and immediate. It might be over a long-term issue. 
and we've got to be open to it. Yeah. Well, Dean, Dean and I, we go for these runs, and we have long conversations about just about everything, and we were talking about just this, and I was thinking about when people try to have a baby, they try to get pregnant, mm. and, you know, if it doesn't happen right away, most people will try everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go, first they'll start with their doctor, Maybe then they'll go see an acupuncturist. Mm-hmm. Maybe then they'll see a naturopath. Then maybe like they'll they'll explore all realms of mm-hmm. of the health world to try to get to where they want to be, which is to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And there's no judgment for that person trying to become pregnant. And you know, I think maybe this is getting more philo- philosophical, but we we have lost. We've we've seen this this division uh, during COVID of of ways of thinking, and I think there is there is nuance, and and uh, um, we can always be open to nuance. I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's what's different yes. than say twenty years ago. Right. Is that there's a far more people are given more responsibility for their healthcare choices. Right. And not being condemned for the choices that they make. Right. Because pe- people in all walks and all professions realize they don't have all the the answers or it's not bear- the, the therapies are not bearing fruit. Right. So that's changed and yeah. I'm glad for that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad for that and that'll only continue to get better because the magic of the human body's ability to develop homeostatic balance is still not completely understood. Right. It's still a work in progress and um how we're able to, you know who knows we might get to the point where we can start to regenerate more than we think we can regenerate. Right. So so has this put you into like the lens of a student once again um going through this pandemic and seeing this global problem um and being in the healthcare industry like has it put you in a place of mm. almost like radical learning to try to navigate it yeah in, in, yeah because uh i'd say about 15 to 20 percent of my patient population now is dealing with uh the after effects of covid wow not and not even in that long-term aspect, but even within three months, within six months of having had COVID. And having to then come up with ways for to shift that is, yeah, radical learning. And people are trying all kinds of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I could see why, because you, the majority of symptoms are neurological. And that's frightening. Mm-hmm. Because as we've talked about, you know, chronic viral infections and the damage a, a viral infection has had can lead to these dement, demented states in another 30, 40 years. We don't know about that now. Yeah, right. We don't have those studies and we won't have them for a while. Yeah, I mean, we see that, you know, people who've had COVID a year ago are more susceptible to diabetes now, a year later. Interesting. And we know that that's one of the five major risk factors, five or six major risk factors that's going to produce neuroinflammation in the brain. So, yeah, there may be a wave of stuff coming yeah. because of this that we don't know yet. Wow. Wild. <laughs> that's crazy. Frighteningly yeah. wild. Frighteningly yeah. wild. Yeah. The one silver lining I see, you know, whether or not people agree with each other on how it is they're trying to 
offset, protect against, ward off COVID. Like there's a heightened awareness now because of this virus that was global um, that people are taking their health, I think, like more seriously. Mm-hmm. They're looking at ways of prevention. They're looking at ways of if they do get it, like how do you reduce symptoms? And, you know, we've all been talking probably to the point of exhaustion about healthcare and how do we look after ourselves and what's the best way to prevent spreading and getting and, you know, having these diseases out there. And so we might not all agree on modalities, mm-hmm. but the encouraging thing is I think that a lot of people are, are taking stock and looking at their lives and saying, okay, how can I, how can I choose to be healthier mm-hmm. or better? And how so be collectively, like that's a win. And I think that seeing the differences as being like, oh, I wouldn't choose that, but I won't like write you off as a human being because yeah. you made a different choice than me, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That people are doing it. The people who I feel a collapse when I hear is that they say, oh, I'm just going to go get COVID and get it over with. I mean, you, it's a crapshoot. It's a roulette. You don't know what you're going to get when you, <laughs> when you get it. It could be a mild, yeah. insignificant experience. Or it could be really life-changing. Yeah. So uh, as to what you just said, absolutely. Yeah. Pay attention to where you have balance in your life and not. It may not, it's not going to necessarily stop you from getting sick, but it may improve your chances of recovery. Right. And having a better life. <laughs> yes. Not necessarily a longer life, but, but a good life. Yeah. <laughs> Dina, do you want to try out our new, new new question you're pondering before we oh, wrap sure. things up with a little? We always end with a little rapid fire. Oh, um, but Dean's got a new question he's been percolating. Yeah, so we always like to collect questions that we you know ponder ourselves and think are interesting, and so this one this one has come up for us lately and feels like it crosses a multitude of professions and experiences. But so you, you've had this. Uh, really incredible career helping people um, helping people find health and balance and on their journey towards towards healing um, so you know through your work as a healer or doctor however you would refer to yourself or like to be referred to as naturopathic physician naturopathic physician what has that taught you about life about life if you can distill it uh it's it's taught me that at any one moment we are an amalgamation of the life that we've led and we are um it's our responsibility to be in this moment as much as we can because the more we get either hypnotized by the past or become transfixed with what we want for the future, we are missing our lives. And that you'll never get back, and that's the only gift you have, and it's the only um, chance you have is to change and heal the world. So I think that would be it. That's awesome. That Thank you. <laughs> that's beautiful <laughs> that is beautiful yeah i'll listen to that on repeat a few times yeah well eric thank you um we do want to wrap things up with a couple rapid fire questions just for fun takeaways um and then we can then we can hit, hit the conclusion button on this conversation okay um okay we mentioned um 
jazz. Mm-hmm. Is there if is there like a quintessential jazz album one or two that uh you know if you were to gift somebody oh what, yeah what would you go with uh i would give them uh one of the later albums of charles lloyd all right very nice and what about um poetry is there a collection that you might share or, or gift to a friend that had a profound impact or, or just a beautiful experience for yourself One of the poets who um, really speaks to me, actually, is uh, Alexander Pope. Because I love the rhythm of what he wrote. Uh, I love how he was able to take the world as he saw it and uh, give it such a stark framework. And the other uh, would be Coleridge. Maybe Wordsworth, but toss up between words with a college. Mm-hmm. But I think Coleridge. Nice. Fantastic. You have uh, some visitors coming to town for the first time here in Vancouver. Mm. Where do you take them for, for a, a nice meal or time? What do you show them in our city? I would go to the Natobi Gardens at UBC. Yeah. And I would uh, go to the sushi bar at um blue blue water is that it yeah blue water okay and have them spend all the money because <laughs> 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 they <get> st- <laughs> oh, but have something as exemplary as the poetic sushi that they create okay. there fantastic all right one thing that i often that we often chatted about when i'd come in for for um session with yourself is uh the latest and greatest movies that we've watched what what's um what are a few movies you've watched in the last few years that uh hit the spot for you well i don't think i've watched many movies actually i've been watching a lot of series onto the netflix and onto the, the series yeah, yeah. Watched a lot Any, of that. anything you loved over the last few years well the weirdest thing i've just watched is called the nevers that was like really weird what? i had to i had to go and do a web search to find out what the, <laughs> what was I watching? Oh. <laughs> so there was that, and the most fun thing I've watched, I've watched it twice with my wife and I, is Mozart in the Jungle. Oh, I haven't watched that. Oh, that sounds cool. That's uh, this one, uh, I, I got so tired, my, my wife loves watching these deep, dark, despairing things, and I can't watch them anymore because everything has been so despairing all around. But in Mozart in the Jungle, this... Um, conductor from Mexico is hired by this New York symphony. And so it's all about him trying to run the symphony, musicians' lives. The music is beautiful. It's got guest appearances of people like Yo-Yo Ma and people like this drop is like, like it's real. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's fun. There's love story. It's sexy. Cool. So that was great. I'll check that out. Yeah. And the other thing I watched that was so intriguing was Borgen. Okay. You know that one? That's uh, Borgen, I think, is Danish for uh, the parliament. And it concerns this woman who becomes the prime minister of Denmark. And, you know, there's, it's not succession, but um, 
Well, like House of Cards or House of Cards. Yeah. You know, like the music builds yes. and then there's the gunshot and people die and things like in Borgen the music would build and build and the phone would ring and I'd be like, <laughs> Okay, I'll be home for supper. You know, like yeah. but it was so well done. You know, so well done. So that's what I really loved about it. Oh, so cool. those are things that stick in my mind. Fantastic. And what about uh books you know is there a fiction book that you would um if you're gifting to a friend or something like yeah. that that you would oh go, it spe- go for? speaks to what we just actually were talking about today i just uh finished it. it's called piranesi by is it susan you have to look it up i can't remember whether it's susan clark or susan collins uh she her previous book which was i think a booker nominee was uh, Mr. Norell and uh, about these two magicians okay. in Victorian England, and this one is about uh, still don't know what this is about, but uh, this guy who is in this house, which is really the world, and it's made up of multiple and infinite rooms, and this is his life, and there's one other person in this house. And that's his only contact with other beings. And it's an uncovering as to how he got there, why he's there, and what it means to have a reality. Mm. So it does fall a bit into the realm of, I wouldn't say sci-fi, but fantasy. Yeah. But it brings up a lot of interesting philosophical questions. Cool. So cool. I Sus- recommend that. Susanna Clark. Susanna Clark. Yeah. Oh, thank there you. There we go. By Piranesi. Very cool. You know, you got any other rapid ones before we yeah. close it out? Yeah, so you mentioned as a young man having your encounter with this you know, dynamic speaker, chiropractor, yeah. uh, energy practitioner. You went to chiropractic school in search of Reiki. Did you ever find it? Re- uh, Reiki and energetics, bioenergetics? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've basically... Uh, my, my sense of uh, healing has to do with the uncovering of armor and how we can become more integrated and not isolated from ourselves. So it really did turn out the way I wanted it to be. Yeah. Hence, and the name of your, your practice. Well, yeah, that's a good question. Like originally the name of our, our uh, clinic was integrative healing arts and that's how it was in 1982. And I thought that was a great name. And then Okay, here's where I have an issue with younger generations. So we end up having this PR company come a few years ago, and they did this whole reaval of everything. And they were interviewing all these young people, and they said that your name's too staid. It doesn't really speak to what's going on. I thought, really? I was sort of taken aback. And so the name they came up with which I don't know why it's now in place, but Center for Integrative Naturopathic Medicine. No, is that it? Center for Integrative Naturopathic Medicine. Or Integrative Naturopathic Medical Center. See, I can't yeah, even... Yeah, there we go. That's I have so it. much resistance to it. Yeah. I can't even remember that. I still call it Integrative Healing Arts when I refer as people. Do, as do I. <laughs> as do I, because I don't know what that means. I and do. it's got too many words, and it doesn't have that iambic... Rhythm to it, yeah. yeah. You know what I loved about your integrative healing arts—that mm-hmm. name to it, like um, 
kind of brought to the thought of of magic and possibility, you yeah. know, because yeah. healing is an art. Yeah, and I think of like Doctor Strange and and Yoda and like kind of like <laughs> like it brought magic into the realm of healing for, yeah. for myself, and yeah. I, I related to that as. Well, I'm with, you. Middle, I'm with age, you. middle young person. I was I was gonna say, I guess we're not young we're not young people anymore because I was like, I like I like the fact that it's got arts in the name too, because to yeah. me it speaks to that creative process of like, yeah. hey, let's get this and it's not just so clinical in exactly. that sense. It's more of an art form. So yeah. but yeah. I guess I guess we're we're not young and with it. Okay, you're with me <laughs> yeah. and the demographic. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So um, we're so deeply appreciative of you and your time. And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, just the work that you do in the world is so important and significant in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so for you to be here with us and just um, sharing your stories and telling us about, you know, how you found your way into this and, and your approach to healing uh, has been wonderful. And I know uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. We always like to end with this one question. So Zach and I created this podcast with the hope to have conversations like these with just truly inspiring people that can help us and shape us to leave, lead better, more full lives. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to call it a little more good, knowing that, you know, that's what we wanted to see and do and create and foster in the world. Mm-hmm. But we're always curious um, for the person sitting across from us in the chair, what does that sentiment, that phrase carry or mean for you a little more good? It's a great question. It's a good question. Because it speaks uh, to possibility and open-ended choice as opposed to denial and restriction. And um, as you know, we were talking before, there, there's those two unconscious rhythms in the body of expansion and contraction. And it's not, they're not pejorative. I mean, expansion isn't always better than contraction. Um, but that said, I think that as we, I think there's always a little more expansion than there is contraction. Mm. The universe is constantly expanding. Uh, it will contract again, but it, it, but there, there is a momentum to it. And so a little more good speaks to that. And the more we can be open-hearted, compassionate with one another, um, to take a breath and be patient with what's happening in front of us and not make moral and emotional judgments so quickly, uh, the world will be a little more good. So thank you. I want to actually express my appreciation to both of you for giving me the chance to just go on about myself <laughs> and the world because I rare, my my wife says why don't you talk and I, I guess I do have a lot to say but uh, it's it's in my head a lot and then it comes out in my activity and then when I leave work I don't always think that way anymore which is my segue into when you have Dina Chachanov coming on. Yes, coming soon. Because she speaks to the need to be uh, consistent in your work life and your home life as a leader. And that to make a split and a difference between the two is adds to the sense of separation that we've been talking about and illness. Mm. So 
Just shout out to Dean on that one. And when you're listening to these podcasts, check that one out. Yes. Coming soon. Well, thank you so much, Eric. So grateful for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Man, oh, man. Dr. Eric Posen, everybody. <laughs> I feel like more whole and healed and well just after having had the experience of, of being with, with Dr. Eric Posen. and. Yes hearing his stories and just being in his presence and understanding, you know, at a, a little bit more of a deeper level, like just the connectedness of, of who we are to ourselves, uh, the people around us, the environment, the world around us, and how, you know, we have the means within ourselves to find balance and regulation and healing, often with the help of someone like him who can help guide us and, yeah, teach us and release us from, you know, the stressors and the things that cause illness. And, uh, so, so good. Incredible. So much we didn't touch on, too. We'll have to have Eric back. Yes. And then, you know, we didn't get into his, his own Buddhist practices. I know. He's a, you know, he's, he's a poet as well. We didn't get too into his poetry. He's a harmonica player. I mean, right. the man's got... Bit uh, of a renaissance man. Bit of a renaissance man, you yeah. know? He's a, he's a talented cat. We, we've talked about it just uh, just after after the podcast, but it feels like he's someone that I would love to just have, like, you know, dinner with a few times a year and just, like, hear stories and ask questions and just kind of, like, absorb the wisdom and knowledge and experiences that he has to offer and, you know, just kind of, like, sit at the feet of a master is what it feels like, right? Yes, yes. So, yeah, that'd be so awesome. 100%. Let's, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, Eric, you know, let's go for dinner sometime. Yeah, definitely. We, we want to hang out and have some some food, maybe at uh, Nightshade or something like that. Right. Yeah. I'll share my creme brulee. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so much to Eric for, for joining us and sharing his time and expertise uh, and stories with us. And of course, thank you uh, to you, the listener for tracking along, for always showing up, for commenting, for liking. Um, of course, if you haven't, please do subscribe wherever you're listening. That helps us out immensely. Um, share the episode, even comment, let us know which part or moment, um, something Eric said that stood out to you or resonated with you. And of course, uh, feel free to check out uh, Dr. Posen himself. If you go to integrative.ca, um, that's the website for his practice. And you can see, read a bit more about him, the services, the other practitioners, some of them he mentioned in the podcast. So be sure to check him out there. And um, as always, just we're so grateful for you, for your time and attention and uh, commitment to us and the stories and people we're sharing. And thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. All right. Peace. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.